Will only perfect people go to heaven? No. Thank you for your time tonight. I said, this could be a really short sermon. Somebody said, I think you can do better than that. All right, we'll give it a shot. You know, I understand why I feel like probably most Christians have asked a question like this at one point in time or the other. Of course, the Bible does talk about being perfect in passages like Matthew 5, for example, verse 48. You be perfect, just like your Father in heaven is perfect. Or like Jesus told the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19, if you go and sell all that you have, then, Matthew 19, about verse 21, you you can be perfect. Of course, we understand that in saying this, it's got to mean something other than sinless, right? Because the New Testament teaches everybody sins. I think that maybe practically we understand that it's impossible for us to be sinlessly perfect. But on the other side, I think there are a lot of folks who probably have this idea that the Bible expects us to be sinlessly perfect. And so there's this tension, and we have difficulty kind of figuring this out. Do I have to be perfect to go to heaven? And then sometimes people who are not Christians, well, they'll say, I don't know... I don't know if I can commit to being a Christian because I don't know that I can live as perfect of a life as I feel like Jesus wants me to live. Now, on the one side, I commend them for counting the cost, right? But on the other side, can any of us measure up to a standard like that? In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, the New Testament says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be, now I memorized this in the King James when I was growing up, that the man of God may be perfect, it says, thoroughly furnished to all good works. Perfect. Of interest, the term translated perfect and sometimes The modern translations will say complete or mature or something along those lines. And it's basically the same word in these passages that I have addressed this evening. Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 19, 2 Timothy chapter 3. And that's certainly not, these are certainly not the only places in Scripture where we'll find that term. We're talking about being whole. We're talking about being complete undivided attention to God, wholehearted submission to his will. God doesn't expect me to be perfect in the way that we use that term, but he does expect me to be faithful. And I think that helps us in our vernacular to kind of get the sense of what we're talking about. I'm not a perfect husband, but I can be a faithful husband, right? And that makes all the difference. When we ask a question like this, will only perfect people go to heaven? I think I understand the sentiments behind the question. So let's analyze those just for a minute. What do we mean when we ask a question like this? Will only perfect people go to heaven? Well, we could be basically saying, I don't believe I'm really forgiven. In other words, is it really that simple? You mean if I submit to Christ... And I have my sins washed away in baptism. And then I, I just try and live right. And, and when, I, when I fall away, I, I just 
I seek God's forgiveness and, and I repent of those things. And if I confess my sins, he's faithful and just to forgive, 1 John 1, 9. And it's almost like we're saying, I feel like there ought to be something more. Is it really that simple? It could be that if I'm asking a question like this, will only perfect people go to heaven, that maybe the sentiment behind that is, I believe that I can earn my salvation. I think that I have to do so much in order to get in. Or maybe I believe that on judgment day, if the good that I've done in my life outweighs the bad that I did in my life, then that means I'm going to be able to, to squeak my way into heaven, you know? I feel like this is a really common belief in religion and maybe even in the Lord's church. But listen, there's no such thing as squeaking your way into heaven. You're either in or you're not, right? There's not going to be this debate on the day of judgment. By the way, I hope this is my commercial for tomorrow night, okay? Call 800 number and you'll get two for $20. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, this is my commercial for tomorrow night. I hope you can be here if you can. What about the second coming? We're going to talk about the day of judgment. We're going to try and break it down. What all is going to happen on that day, the way that Scripture uh, teaches? But I think a lot of people think that there's going to be some deliberation. Or maybe, you know, you hear illustrations about Peter standing at the pearly gates and he's searching for your name. You know, uh, uh, what's your middle name? What was your social security number? You know, we need to try and figure out, are you the right guy that we're looking for here? That's not the way this works. I'm either forgiven or I'm not. I'm either saved or I'm not, right? Sometimes when we're asking, can only perfect people go to heaven? Maybe the sentiment behind that question is, I believe I can earn my way into heaven. That is something that the New Testament seriously challenges. And we need to come to terms with that. Maybe if I'm asking the only perfect people go to heaven, maybe the sentiment behind it is, I don't think I'm good enough. Will God keep forgiving me? Have you asked God to forgive you? For the same sin over and over? You ever done that? Well, I know I have. And sometimes, in my shame, it's almost like I'm saying, Lord, here I am again. I'm in the same place that I've been before. And sometimes I'll even confess to God, I don't know. I don't understand how you can continue to forgive. But I believe that you do. And I'm putting my trust and my faith in that. Maybe we're communicating, at least in this sense, that I've got a low self-esteem. Maybe I'm being too hard on myself. Perhaps I am judging myself by a standard beyond even how God judges me. Because God says their sins and their iniquities, once they're forgiven by God through the blood of Jesus... Their sins and their iniquities, I remember no more. And you've got the permission to enjoy that. You can believe that. More on that in a minute, though, before I get ahead of myself. Maybe when I ask this question, will only perfect people go to heaven, I could be communicating in the fourth place. You like how I'm building this uh, suspense here? One moment. Okay. Boy, when it catches up, we're going to fly through this sermon. Here it is. I could be saying I'm cynical toward Christianity. I can imagine, in fact, I've heard people essentially say this. They're, they're outside of the kingdom. They're, they're, they're not members of the church. And they say, how could anyone really measure up to the standard of Scripture? Or, or sometimes they'll say, why are you trying to pretend to be something you're not? 
Don't you Christians know that you're not perfect, but you go in there in that church building and you act like you got everything all together. <laughs> I haven't encountered a lot of Christians who really believe they have everything all together. Have you? Can we just say it out loud a minute? We, we don't have everything all together in this room, okay? The fact that we're here on a Tuesday night <laughs> yeah, really emphasize. I'm not trying to put anything on you. I'm just saying, I know I need all the Bible I can get, you know. <laughs> I need all the help I can get in my relationship with the Lord. But sometimes those on the outside who are antagonistic toward us will say, quit trying to pretend, you know. Quit trying to act like something that you're not. Maybe when I ask this question, I could be saying, I think the standard's too high. If God is perfect and if he can't tolerate any sin in his presence, and by the way, those are two biblical truths, aren't they? Then how can I go? Perhaps these are the questions or the sentiments behind the question that we often ask. Do I have to be perfect to go to heaven? Now listen, as fundamental of a question as this is, it is nevertheless important that I know how to articulate the answer in my mind from Scripture. And that's our purpose this evening. Would you open to Romans chapter 3? Romans chapter 3. And let's look as we seek to answer this question biblically. Will only perfect people go to heaven at the system of salvation. Now by that I mean an organized set of doctrines, of teachings, of ideas, of principles that are intended to explain the arrangement of a whole set of teaching. All right, so we're going to look at the particulars of salvation. We're going to see how it's possible for imperfect people to be saved and thus on judgment day to be admitted entrance into the presence of a perfect and holy God. And I'm telling you this evening that the New Testament teaches it is absolutely possible. In fact, if it were impossible, nobody could go to heaven, right? In Romans chapter 3, let's begin at verse 21. And as we begin, we'll make several observations. First of all, to establish the fact that salvation is the subject of that which Paul is speaking. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. All right, push the pause button. Uh, we are already in pretty deep, aren't we? We just, we just read the verse. The righteousness of God. Sometimes when we read that phrase, we're talking about a characteristic of God. That is to say, God is righteous. Everything he does is right. He's perfect. But I don't believe, based on the context of this particular verse, that this particular phrase is referring to the characteristic of God. You see, this could also refer to the means by which God accounts us as righteous. That is to say, the righteousness that is offered to human beings by God. And as I keep reading, I think that it seems pretty clear that that's what he's talking about. God's plan for accounting people as righteous has been manifested apart from the law. Of course, Paul, in the book of Romans, is writing to Christians some of whom come from a Jewish background and others of whom come from a Gentile background. And of course, in the first century, Christians who had come out of Judaism were no doubt very tempted to, in part, retain a lot of those Old Testament customs. 
but also to feel as though they had a leg up on things in terms of Christianity and faithfulness because of their adherence previously to the Old Testament law. So were Jewish Christians better, more religious, more faithful than the Gentile Christians? Well, no. And that's the point, I think, that Paul's trying to make largely in the book of Romans. So we come to Romans chapter 3. Paul says there in verse 21 that the means by which God accounts people as righteous has been manifested apart from strict adherence to law. Do you understand what he's saying? Even though I don't perfectly keep law because I'm an imperfect individual, the means by which God will account me as righteous is manifested apart from perfect adherence to law. Aren't you grateful that the Bible says that out loud? I surely am. And by the way, this was always God's plan. The law and the prophets bear witness to it. So I've turned backward in my Bible to the book of Habakkuk. This may be one of those books of your Bible that doesn't have a lot of fingerprints on it. Maybe not as many fingerprints as the book of Romans does. But when I come to Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4, it says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. What, according to this Old Testament prophet, made somebody righteous? Was it his strict adherence to law? No, it was by his faith. Of interest, when I go all the way back to Genesis chapter 15, and I read about Abraham, the father of the faithful, it says that his faith was accounted to him as righteousness. No doubt about it, Abraham wanted to do what God said, and he did on the whole. Nevertheless, it was his faith. And I go down Hebrews 11 and I read about all these great Old Testament men and women who were faithful to God, no doubt, saved, right? And they did what they did, you know, by faith, by faith, by faith. I read down that one after another. By faith, Abel offered by faith. Noah built the boat, right? And on and on it goes. Back to Romans chapter 3. I think it's clear that salvation is the subject here because when I keep reading into verse 22. All right, here's what Paul has said so far. The means by which God accounts people as righteous is manifested apart from strict adherence to God's commands. All right, we're we're not minimizing the importance of submission to God's commands. We're going to come back around to that in just a minute. I'm just telling you the progression of where we are so far. Okay, and this has always been God's plan. Going back through the Old Testament, I've cited two of a plethora of verses that we could, to which we could turn that emphasize that righteousness comes by means of faith, not by means of strict adherence to the law. But remember from our studies earlier in the week, faith without works is dead. Right? True faith is active faith. It's a faith that trusts. And to trust God means I'm going to do whatever he tells me to do. Verse 22 then the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ah, aren't you glad that's in the Bible? Everybody messes up. No, messes up is a way that we like to put it, right? Oh, I just messed up. No, we sinned. Sin is the transgression of God's law. 1 John 3, 4 in the King James. Sin is lawlessness. 
Sin is when I say, God, no thank you to what you say. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And the Bible says right here in Romans chapter 3 that everybody has done it. Nobody's exempt except for Jesus. But there is a means by which God will account me as right in his sight. Righteousness. That is manifested apart from perfect obedience to every command of law. Okay. So there's hope for me. All have sinned, 3.23. But there is a way by which, and God has a plan, that I can be counted as righteous apart from moral perfection. Huh. Tell me more, right? We're leaning in. Paul, I want to know more about this. Consider the fact as we further establish that this is a passage about our salvation, that there are three key terms that are used to describe salvation in our text. Going down to verses 24 and 25. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are, word number one, justified by his grace as a gift through the, word number two, redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a, word number three, propitiation by his blood. Let's pause and analyze these terms for just a moment. These are some pretty big deal Bible words, and although we don't often use them outside of biblical contexts, it's important that we understand the biblical meanings. We're talking about justification, verse 24, redemption, verse 24, and that Jesus is our propitiatory sacrifice, verse 25. When we talk about being justified, we're talking about being cleared, held guiltless. I am no longer going to be punished for the sins that I committed. Now in our text, verse 24 says that we are justified by his, we just sang about it, amazing grace as a gift. That is related to and possible, made possible by the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption. A term, as we discussed on Sunday, that encapsulates three main steps. The first one is, I'm in bondage because of my sin. But, thanks be to God, Jesus came and he paid the ransom price that was necessary to then result in my liberation of those sins. And all three of those concepts combined give us this New Testament wonderful word, redemption. Jesus has redeemed me. Sweet as a song I'm singing today. I'm redeemed, right? Brother, I told you I could think of all kinds of songs during the sermon, right? But not before. He asked me on Sunday, what songs you got in mind? These just come to me. I don't know. I'm redeemed. All right, and that redemption comes as a result of the fact that Jesus paid the ransom price, his blood, as we discussed last evening, which was necessary to result in my liberation of my previous bondage and sin. The third word is the word propitiation. We're talking about an atoning sacrifice. The word propitiation really encapsulates two biblical concepts. On the one hand... The fact that God is perfectly just necessitates that he punishes sin. Sin cannot go unpunished. 
It's not that God can just choose to sweep our sinful actions under the rug just because he likes us. No. Sin breaks the heart of God. I truly believe that. And that shows us the other side of this word. God is just. And you know, if a judge is going to be just, that judge must make sure that sin is properly punished. On the other side of this word propitiation is the fact that God is all loving and God is merciful and God does not want anyone to perish but that all should come to repentance. 2 Peter 3, 9. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who would have all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4. And so the word propitiation is the solution to both of these what seem to be concepts that are held in tension against one another. On the one side, how is God going to punish sin? On the other side, how is God going to redeem a people who are bound by their actions, by the things they have done, to be destined only for an eternal hell, which is the punishment for the sins that they've committed? And the answer is at the cross. Because there's Jesus. Suspended between heaven and earth, bearing the punishment that was mine and yours. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Jesus took my place. He's my atoning sacrifice. And in the very same sacrifice... He shed his blood, making it to where I can be forgiven. Do you see how awesome the plan of God is? Here's Jesus, and he's taking my punishment, but at the very same time, he's shedding the blood that is necessary for me to be saved. And all of that is wrapped up in this wonderful New Testament word, propitiation. Well, I used to have to practice for days to be able to say that from the pulpit, you know. (laughs) The stuff that preachers do that sometimes we don't, you know. Anyway, propitiation. Turning away God's anger by the offering of a gift. I'm telling you that Romans chapter 3 verses 21 through 26 is a passage about the means by which God saves mankind. And here's what we've learned. God has a plan. And that plan involves something other than my being perfect in the way that we usually use that term. So, what is that plan? How is this possible? Let's dig further into this text. And as we do, let's make, uh, I think it's going to be five observations that can help us to answer this question. Do only perfect people go to heaven? Number one, as we make the application, everybody stands in equal need For salvation. Somebody put it this way. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And by that they were not talking about a hill called Mount Calvary. Uh, they, They were talking about the fact that we all stand in equal need. Of the blood that Jesus has shed. Listen, it doesn't matter what your background was. Maybe you were, as we say, raised in a religious environment. Or maybe you were not. Maybe you have done things that are very public and shameful. Or maybe you have done private things that are very shameful. Whatever the case might be, all have sinned, Romans 3.23. And thus we all stand in equal need of the grace of God. 
And every person who is a New Testament Christian ought to be able to relate to the individual who is struggling in sin. Because we've all been there. We all used to be there. And now, thanks be to God, we're forgiven. Nobody can be justified by law because all have sinned. Do you see what we're saying here? I might think that I'm doing pretty good on keeping the commands of God in the New Testament. Maybe I am. But I'm telling you, nothing that I do in and of myself can be sufficient to obligate God to save me. The New Testament teaches that in order for one to be saved, he or she must be baptized. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, and he who does not will be condemned, Mark 16, 16. But we need to know this, that apart from the the, um, power of the blood of Jesus, it doesn't matter how many times I go out in and out of water. The New Testament teaches that we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, Hebrews 10.25. But listen to this. I can be here every time the doors are open and then some. But apart from the blood of Jesus, those acts are not sufficient to obligate God to admit me entrance into heaven on the judgment day. No man can boast in his sight. By grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, so that no man can boast. Please, don't misunderstand. We have to do faithful acts of obedience. I will show you my faith by my obedient acts of submission to God. James tells us that in James chapter 2. The question is, why am I doing those things? Am I motivated toward obedience because I want to try and earn my way into heaven? Or am I motivated to obey God out of love and honor and a a desire to glorify God for what he has done for me? I think that makes a lot of the difference. Number two, salvation comes independent of perfect obedience to the law. When I back up a little bit, To verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The more I dig into God's word, the more I realize how far I am from standard of God to the way that I am. You know, the Old Testament is profitable to us for a lot of things. We can learn a lot from studying the Old Testament, even though as Christians we don't live under that Old Testament law anymore. The law of Christ is now in effect. And yet as I go back and I look at those things, I understand that God is really serious about sin. I understand what sin is. I understand that the fact that I have the law of God, His Word today, by that very fact that it exists for me, means that there is a way to miss that mark and thus to sin. But if I'm saved, if I'm saved, it's going to be because of some external 
source. Stick with me, because we've got more to say about that. Number three, faith is the condition of salvation. The old preachers used to call this our part. They would talk about what God has done. God has done his part, they would say. Citing passages like John 3.16. Amen, right? For God so loved the world that he gave. Who first? Me or God? Well, God did. In fact, herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 1 John chapter 4. All right, so God is the one who moved first in trying to reach out to you and me to draw us into him. To borrow from the writer of Hebrews from last night's discussion, to bring many sons to glory. That's how much God loves us. He moved first. (laughs) He wants us. But if we're going to reach up and to receive the gift of grace, it's going to be done through faith. And that, as the old preachers used to say, is man's part. That's the stuff that you and I have to do. Notice three times in our text, Paul will emphasize the necessity of faith Beginning in verse 22, he talks about the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This is something, verse 25, that is received by faith. Jesus, God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And then look at verse 26. It was to show his, God's righteousness at the present time so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. When we talk about faith, we're talking about conviction. And if I'm convicted of something, if I really believe something, I'm going to act like it. If you had reason to believe that we were in danger this evening sitting in this room. Would you pretend as though we weren't in danger? If you knew that there was something perilous in our near future and that we would be endangering ourselves by being in this room this evening, would you pretend like there wasn't anything wrong? No. But we'd be warning each other, wouldn't we? But you got to get out of here. You need to move. Don't you understand you're in danger? There's something serious that is headed this way. You've got to get out of here. If we believe that there is a God, that he made this universe, that everything exists by him and through him, and that he's given us his word as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, as a road map to show us the way home, are you going to sit there and act like that isn't the case? Or are you going to live like it? See, that's faith. Faith is more than just the mental acknowledgement of a reality. It's more than just saying out loud, I believe that there is a God. You know, you see a tree chopped down and you see the rings inside that tree and you're reminded of the the meticulous uh, design of our universe. Oh, there must be a God, but I'm not going to do anything about that. No, that's not faith. Faith is more than just the words we say. I'll show you my faith by what I do. Faith is the condition of my salvation. This is where my works of obedience come in. Notice that Paul teaches here that while salvation is available, apart from perfect adherence to the law, 
He nevertheless teaches that in order for me to receive the gift of grace, there are things that I must do. But I don't do them in an effort to earn my way into heaven. I do them in an effort to reach up and to receive from God's bountiful hand the gift of grace and to appropriate that to my soul. That's what this is all about. We must put ourselves in the place to receive forgiveness by exercising faith. Look at verse 22 once again at the end of the verse. After he says the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, he says, for there is no distinction. That is to say, everybody needs this salvation. And everyone who receives this salvation will receive it by doing the same thing. There's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the means by which salvation is possible for these fallen people is only going to be received by means of faith. There's something that we all must do in order for us to secure our souls in Jesus. So, observation number four is that salvation is a gift. It's a gift that's made possible by Christ's death. Focus in on that word gift for a moment. In verse 24, at least in the English Standard Version from which I'm reading, it says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. Some translations say freely. Same term that is translated as a gift in the English Standard Version. Freely. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 8, he says, you know how we've labored among you. We've done our part so that we did not take from you when we shouldn't have. We didn't take things that we had not bought. And he uses there a form of the same term that we find here in Romans chapter 3. Something you get without paying for it. In John chapter 15, verse 25, we'll find this term again. And once again, in a context of, I can receive something without doing anything to deserve it. What are you saying, Paul? We are justified, rendered guiltless, by His grace as a gift, something that I cannot earn, something that I do not deserve. No one is so rich that they can buy salvation. And no one is so poor that they cannot obtain it. It's a gift. It's a gift. Are you a good gift giver? Some people are great gift givers. I'm not. And I'm also kind of weird about gift receivers as well. You know, like, I'm not a good gift receiver. I, oh, you shouldn't have. You know, and I know that, and I feel weird about I'm just kind of an awkward person in general. It's just sort of the way it works. When we talk about salvation, I think a lot of us are kind of awkward gift receivers. For me? Can I be saved? He did that for me. Don't, don't I need to do more in order to receive it? 
Shouldn't I put myself through some kind of punishment or something? I mean, can it just be that simple as I submit to God's plan and when I do, the blood of Jesus washes away my sins? I mean, shouldn't I put myself in some holding area for a while or something? Probation, discipline in the corner, dunce cap, you know, something? Sometimes we treat other people who are forgiven that way. Well, you're forgiven, but you're on probation. You know, we we want you over there for a while. We want you to know, you know what you did. You just stay over there until you can articulate clearly enough. No, see, we're not good gift receivers sometimes. Paul makes it clear. What God has made possible by his grace is something that is given freely. You cannot pay enough money for it. You don't have enough money to earn it. Nobody does. Think about the richest men and women in the world. There's no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if they are justified, if they will be saved, they will do it by means of a gift that has been made possible. And that gift, namely, is the death of Jesus and his shed blood. Look at verse 25. Jesus, whom God put forward, a term that means that God placed Jesus out before the world to be this atoning sacrifice, to to be the sacrifice that took away the anger of God that was in our direction. All right, and this was done by his blood to be received by faith. Look at verse 25 in the middle of the verse. This was to show God's righteousness. God, why'd you do that? Why would you give this kind of gift to me? Because I love you. And I want you to know who I am. I want you to know the kind of father I am. A lot of people in this old world think about God as this guy who's kind of looking down and he's just waiting for the opportunity to get to zap somebody. Maybe he's keeping a running tab of the number of people that are going to populate the realm of eternal destruction one day. And maybe they think he laughs about that. Look at him trying. You know. That's not the picture of the God of the Bible. He's given salvation as a gift. And that by means of the blood of his only begotten son. And so the final observation that we need to make this evening is this one. That salvation is a testament to and only to God's greatness. Verse 25 again. Jesus, God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And this was done to show God's righteousness. Okay, now we're not talking about the means by which God will account me as righteous. Now we're talking about God's moral character. The fact that God always does what's right. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, We're talking about a temporary delay of deserved punishment. In his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. I think here we're talking about the sins that were committed prior to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Verse 26. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he, God, might be just... God punishes sin. And the justifier, God is the one who pronounces them not guilty of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
several observations here from the end of verse 26. Number one, everyone who will be in heaven, everyone who will be in heaven will be in heaven by virtue of the blood of Jesus. Noah, Moses, everybody in the hall of the faithful, According to the verse that we just read together in verse 25, God in his divine forbearance passed over those former sins. You know, it's impossible that the blood of bulls and goats can take away sins. The writer of Hebrews will tell us. So what did take away their sins? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And consequently, anyone who will be in heaven will only be there by virtue of the blood of Jesus. See, that's you and me. From this present time and moving forward, God is able to be just. He is the one who punishes sin. He always does what's right, but he's punished sin in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, referring to the cross of Christ, hearkening back to the Old Testament system. And in the very same moment on the cross, God made it possible for him, the just judge who punishes sin, to also get to be the one who looks at us by virtue of Jesus' blood and says they're not guilty. They're saved. I don't remember what they used to do. You know, it's not that God has short-term memory loss, right? He chooses not to remember that stuff anymore. He chooses to wipe our slate clean. It's not there. Will only perfect people go to heaven? Sometimes when we ask this question, we may have one of these five sentiments behind the question. But if I'm struggling to believe that I'm really forgiven, I need to ask you this evening, do you have faith? Do you believe what God says? Are you seeking to submit to what God says? If you believe what God says about the reality of hell, then this evening, why are you unwilling to believe what God says about the reality of heaven and the blood of Jesus that was shed for you to be able to go there? Somebody says, well, I just feel like I'm not doing enough. Listen, salvation is a gift. It's all grace. That's not to say there's nothing we have to do. I think we've demonstrated that clearly this evening from Romans chapter 3. And all the New Testament corroborates that as well. But I can't earn it. Somebody says, well, I don't think I'm good enough. You're not. All due respect, you're some of the finest people I've ever met. I'm not trying to put something on you, but I'm just trusting what God says. Romans 3.23, every one of us in this room has something in common. And that is that at some point in our past, some people in this room, perhaps in the present, I have been or I am in sin. But if I'm trying to earn my way into heaven, if I'm trying to think I have to be good enough to get there, you can't be good enough on your own. You can't. I can't either. I don't think I'm good enough. Listen to this. You're not. Nobody is. Look at how much he loves you. Somebody may be cynical toward Christianity and say, why to pretend something that you're not? Listen, this evening we're not pretending. 
We're just responding to love. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all, the hymn writer says. Remember that? When I survey the wondrous cross. That's true. Somebody says the standard's just too high. Listen, God expects you to be faithful, but he knows. He knows you're not going to be perfect. Trust him. Believe in him. This evening, if you're counting on anything or anyone other than God through Christ to perfect you, then you're misguided. The question itself is almost a foreign notion to the New Testament writers. When they talked about being perfect, when Jesus said, be perfect as your Father in heaven, that that wasn't what he meant. He wasn't talking about moral perfection, that is, to say that you don't ever sin. They recognized God as the great giver of salvation, and they they recognized the death of Jesus as the unspeakable gift that makes that salvation possible. You don't have to be perfect as we say it to go to heaven, not as we think about it. But you do have to be perfected in Christ. You do have to receive the gift of salvation through faith in Christ. Don't let a false assumption tonight become an excuse for you not to be saved. You can be saved. Jesus died so you would be saved. This evening you can know that you're saved. And you can live like you're saved. You always wonder in your mind when you preach a sermon like this, did I qualify everything just the way I meant to? Is anybody going to leave here with misunderstanding? I hope not. Tonight, if you're a Christian, my prayer is that you feel strengthened in your salvation. That you know that you're on your way to heaven. And that you feel moved on a regular basis to glorify God And on the Lord's day to come together and to worship God because of his grace and because of all that he's done for you. This evening, if you're in this room this evening, you've got doubts and questions either about what you've done in the past or maybe what your future needs to be. I hope you'll hear us clearly that you're in a room among people who know exactly what it's like to be in in the place where you are. Maybe our pasts aren't identical to one another, but we've all sinned. We've all fallen short. And this evening, every one of us has a vital need for the blood of Jesus. And so if you're not a Christian, we want you to know. We want you to do what you need to do, but we want you to know why you're doing what it is that you need to do. If you have not been immersed in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, based on your faith in Him, you're willing to turn from sin, repent of that sin. I'm not going to do that stuff anymore. To confess the name of Jesus. That is to say, He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then to live like He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. If you're ready this evening to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, to contact the blood that was shed for you and for me, we would urge you to do it this evening. If you have questions about that, talk to one of us tonight. Let's set up a time when we can just get together and open God's word and just talk about this stuff. It's that important. I know the people in this room. They'll make room in their schedules for a conversation like that. This evening, if you need the prayers of this group of people, maybe you want to make sure. Maybe you want your calling and election to be sure. Maybe there's sin in your life as a Christian you need to come confessing. 
We all come humbly before God. It's to God that all the glory belongs. This evening, if you need to respond to his invitation, come to him while we stand and sing together.